morning. It's really great to see you, whether you're joining us online or you're here in person. I'm really glad you're with us this morning. If we haven't met or you're new or you're a guest, my name's Hannah, and I get to lead our hospitality team on Sunday mornings. And then during the rest of the week, I get to plan our scattering events, and then every once in a while, I get to give the message. So I'm excited to share with you and start a conversation this morning. A few weeks ago, I spoke and we started this conversation around ideas about power and privilege and difference, and we talked about something called intersectionality. And we had a conversation around kind of how are different social categories like race or gender or religious backgrounds, things like that, how they all intersected and combined and overlapped to create our unique experiences with the world and they shaped our interactions and conversations that we had with others and with the world around us. So this morning, I want to kind of continue that conversation, but I want to turn internal. I want us thinking internally this morning, and I want us to think about how our thoughts and how our thought processes or our beliefs kind of manifest into our behaviors, which leads to our interactions and our conversations with those around us. So this is our goal. Our goal this morning is how do our thoughts, how do our thought processes How do our beliefs and our attitudes influence our behaviors, our interactions, and our conversations with others and the world around us? So to get thinking about this idea on thoughts leading to behaviors, I'm going to tell you a story. So two years ago, I was home alone one night, and it was like late November, early December, so it was probably like 6 or 7 o'clock, but it was pitch dark. And I was finishing up some homework. So it was towards the end of my semester. I was taking an Old Testament class that was, it was kicking my butt. There was so much work. And I was almost done with this class. I had a final paper project or something I was working on. But I was stressed. I was trying to get all this stuff in before the deadline. And so what you have to know about me for this story to make sense is that when I get stressed, I immediately go to the worst case. I ask myself, what if, what if, What if this happens? What if that happens? And so that's what happened this night. So sitting at our kitchen table, I was doing my homework. I think Scott was off playing basketball with friends. And this little thought pops in my head. And it says, what if someone tries to break into the house right now? Now, there's no reason I should think this. Our neighborhood's pretty safe. Like, I hadn't seen anything suspicious. None of our neighbors had clued us in on anything weird, so I knew this was a stress reaction. So I thought, okay, ignore this thought, get your schoolwork done, like, focus here. But I couldn't ignore this thought, so I thought, okay, let's run this out. Okay, what if someone broke into the house right now? So I'm sitting at the kitchen table, and I'm thinking, all right, if they come in the front door, I can go out the back door. If they come in the back door, I'm going to go out the front door. I can use that as a weapon. Okay, I think the neighbors are home. I could run over there. So I had all of these different worst-case scenarios planned out, and I had a plan for everything that could go wrong. So I thought, okay, that was fun. Let's get your schoolwork done. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table still. I'm working on my paper. About 10 minutes later, I thought, what if, what if I could prevent this hypothetical person from breaking into the house? That would be even better, right? So I thought, okay, this is what I need to do. 
thoughts turning to behaviors, I need to turn on all of the lights in the house. Because then they're going to think there's a huge party happening and there's so many people in here that this person that's going to want to break into the house is not going to want to break into the house if they see all the lights on. So I get up from the kitchen table and I turn on every single light in our house. Bedroom, bathroom, laundry room, garage light, every light in the house is on. And I think, I'm really smart. I just solved this problem. Sat down at the kitchen table. I'm working on my schoolwork again. Ten minutes later, I thought, oh, what if, what if they realize that it's all fake? There's no cars outside. Like, my car's in the garage. Scott's gone. What if this person that's going to break into the house realizes that it's just me and I'm pretending? So I thought, okay, even better. I'm going to turn off half of the lights. So I got up. I turned off half of the lights. I got back, I sat back down at the kitchen table, and at this point I was just exhausted because I had wasted so much time thinking through this dumb hypothetical situation and acting on it in ways that I didn't need to be acting on because I knew it was a stress reaction. And so I thought, I'm just going to bed. This is ridiculous. I'll do this schoolwork later. So I went upstairs, I went to bed, and I'm laying in bed, and I thought, oh... Scott's going to get home in half an hour, and then I'm going to have to explain this entire thought process to another person. And I'm not prepared to have that conversation at 10 o'clock at night. So I got up and I shut off all the lights in the house, and I went to bed. So I thought, I'm never telling anyone that story. So I just shared it with like 50 people. But I thought it was kind of a funny story to get us thinking about how our thoughts can really lead to these behaviors and actions and interactions that we can have, and it can spiral pretty quickly. So today, in our world today, we find ourselves thinking through all of these interactions and behaviors that we've never had to think through before. Handshakes. Is that a thing anymore? Hugs. Are you hugging? Am I hugging? Should I be hugging? Should we be hugging in public? Like, what are people going to think? Should we go to that barbecue? Should we not go to that barbecue? Should we go to their house? Should we not? Should we go to this game? Should we not? Should we hang out inside? Is it safer to hang out outside? I don't know. We're all weighing the risks and the benefits of these everyday interactions that a year ago we just would have done without any thought. In the past month, we've seen my grandparents and Scott's grandma, and I've never had to think through so hard about something as simple as going to see your grandparents. Like, should we isolate before we go? Should we not? Should we go see them? Am I sitting too close to grandma? Are we sharing food? Are we not? Like, it's hard. It's tiring, right? We're all weighing these, like, costs and benefits of just everyday interactions. I'm reading this book right now, and it's called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And it's written by two social psychologists. And they introduced this concept uh, early on in the book. And it's called cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is defined as a state of tension that occurs when a person holds two cognitions. So a cognition is like a thought or a belief or an attitude. It's when a person holds two cognitions that are psychologically inconsistent or participate in a behavior that goes against their cognition. So for example, to put this in like real life terms, uh, speeding. So for example, I believe speed limits are important. I think we should all follow them. I think they're there for a really great reason. But my actions, like I speed more than I should admit. 
So I hold one belief and do something totally different. And psychologists would say this could cause dissonance or mental stress. So because we don't like stress and we want to think consistently, we'll do a few things. So we could change our belief. I could believe that speed limits are dumb or irrelevant. Or I could change my action and I could say, every time I'm driving, I'm going to follow that speed limit. Every time, any time, doesn't matter. But what's more likely to happen, psychologists say, is this thing called self-justification. So self-justification is defined as when we defend or uphold our actions to make ourselves look or feel good about what we did or failed to do. I'm a really safe driver. So that's why I don't have to follow the speed limit, right? Everyone else should, but I'm a safe driver, so I don't need to. Or I could tell myself, you know, I don't speed that much. I only speed when I'm late to staff meeting on Tuesday mornings. So that's important, I want to get there. Or you could say something like, I don't drive that much. So when I speed, it's so insignificant, right? We can use these to reduce our dissonance. We can overcompensate by justifying our actions or our beliefs. So self-justification isn't inherently bad. It's not a bad thing, but it becomes really dangerous when it allows us to convince ourselves that what we did was the best we could have done. So going on in the book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, they talk about this pyramid of choices. And I thought this was a really handy visual to kind of put into perspective how we can make a decision and then self-justify our choices. So the pyramid of choices would say early on, we make an inconsequential or really low-risk decision and then self-justify to reduce the ambiguity of our choice. And so remember, self-justification isn't bad. It's not always bad. So for example, I like examples because they get me thinking in like real-life terms. For example, we bought a house in Helena just three years ago. We wanted to make Helena our home, and so we had kind of a small, a shockingly small list for such a big purchase, small list of things that we wanted in a home. One of those was not location. We didn't care if we bought in town, out of town, east Helena, wherever. We looked at houses all over the place. So we eventually bought a house in the North Valley, pretty far north, north of Lincoln Road. And so we made that decision. Three years, or not three years, so three years ago I bought the house. Three weeks ago, I found myself in this conversation, and I was saying things like, I would never be happy if I lived downtown. I'd never be happy if I lived anywhere else. I love my house. I love our neighborhood. You know, blah, blah, blah. I had all of these reasons. And I was so sure I'd made the right decision. And I was reflecting on that conversation later, and I thought, well, that's really interesting, because three years ago, you didn't care. And now all of a sudden, you have very strong opinions about where you live and how much you love it. So that's not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad thing to justify that choice and love where you live. But self-justification can be really dangerous, and we see this in this example. So if you've taken a psychology class or maybe an ethics class, you've probably heard of this experiment called the Milgram Experiment. So Stanley Milgram was a social psychologist in the 60s, and he got participants to take part in an experiment. 
and the participants were told that they would be administering increasingly higher levels of electric shock to another person when they got an answer wrong. So really, there's not another person. They're faking their reactions, but the participant thought, I think I got a little chart up here that helps us make sense of it. So the subject thought they were shocking another human being when they got the answers wrong. That would be our fake test subject. And then the experimenter's role was to kind of prompt this subject to continue administering the shock. So originally he wanted to study um, obedience to authority figures, right? An experimenter in a lab coat or a psychologist rep represents a kind of authority figure. So shockingly, two-thirds of these subjects administered lethal levels of electric shock to another human being, or so they thought. So it's a really interesting example of obedience to authority, but even more interesting, in the book I'm reading, they say it's an example of how dangerous self-justification can be. For example, if a psychologist comes up to you and says, hey, for 20 bucks, would you administer a potentially lethal level of electric shock to another human being? You would say no, and take your 20 bucks and leave. But if a psychologist comes up to you and says, hey, for 20 bucks, will you administer just 10 volts of electric shock? Here, you can try it, you can hardly feel it. Will you administer this to another person? And you would guess, sure. That's a pretty inconsequential decision. So you're in the experiment, you administer the 10 volts, and you think you're prompted to go to 20, and you think, well, 10 wasn't that bad, 20's not that much more, okay, fine, you administer 20. All right, let's go to 30, well, 30's not that much more, so let's go to 30. All right, 40, 50, 60, when do you stop? And I was reading this and I thought, whoa, that speaks to the power of justifying our choices. So I had a few questions. I thought, okay, when do we reevaluate? When do we reevaluate that initial decision? Are we giving ourselves permission to even consider reevaluating that choice? And two, is this really what I believe? Or am I self justifying a previous decision? Like, is this how I really want to behave? Is this the action I want to portray? or am I self-justifying a previous choice? So I was reading all this, and it was really interesting to me, and I thought, okay, where's God showing up in all of this? And I didn't know. So I thought, okay, I either have to blow up this talk and go a completely different direction, or God's going to show me something that we can pull out of this. And so last week, I was listening to a Bible Project podcast. And if you're not familiar with the Bible Project, it's a really great resource. They've got some great videos and a good podcast I like to listen to. And they were talking about Daniel. And I thought, yes, we're going to talk about Daniel. So Daniel is a young Israelite who is living in Jerusalem. And he's living in Jerusalem at the time where the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple and they take several Israelites, members of their royal family, off into exile with them. So Daniel is one of those people that get taken into exile along with a couple of his friends that we'll talk about. His life is really chaotic, it's traumatic, 
it's tumultuous. I don't really have a framework for even thinking about what that kind of situation would be like for me today. So Daniel finds favor with the kings. He can interpret dreams and visions, but his life is not easy. So let's just dive into Daniel a little bit. So the king, the king of the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. I'm guessing that's big. I have no idea. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the luth, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, all these kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, I don't know what half these are. Okay, the harp and all kinds of music, all nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it's funny they don't talk about Daniel specifically in this story, but they talk about his three friends. And they're not about to do this. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. I I love this response. You'll get a kick out of this. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. (laughs) We don't need to tell you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the king took this really well, and he said, that's reasonable good for you. No, just kidding. He threw them in the furnace, and they walk out alive, unscathed. There's a lot. I realize there's a ton in this book, so if you have time this week, I'd recommend you go back and kind of read through Daniel. I'm skipping over a lot. We're just hitting the main points. So King Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son, King Balthazar, is now now king, and we're at a banquet. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And as they're drinking the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Bizarre. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So he called in some of his wise men and no one could figure out what this meant. And so the queen said, hey, Remember, your father used to use this guy, Daniel, and he would interpret some of his dreams, give Daniel a call, see what he has to say. So this is Daniel. He comes in, and this is his response to the king. You have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver, of gold, 
of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot be see, they cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds his hand, your life, and all your ways. Therefore, he sent this hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. I don't know how to say those words, but that was what was written on the wall. Here's what these words mean. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So that night, the king of Babylon is killed. Darius, with the Medes and the Persians, comes in and just like that, someone else is in control. So there's a theme with these kings, and King Darius again sends out a decree saying, if anyone worships, it, worships someone or a god other than me, now this time they're going to get thrown into the lion's den. So Daniel, we get to hear Daniel's response this time. And Daniel learns this, and guess what he does? Now when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he'd done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying, asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Did you publish? What? Oh, sorry. I messed up my bed. Did you publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands. In accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be repealed. So Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. He stays there all night, and the next morning, when the king comes back, he wants to see what happened to Daniel, he walks out untouched. So Daniel's lived through the overthrow of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He's taken into Babylon. His friends get thrown into a furnace. He predicts the overthrow of the Babylonians. He's alive during this other empire. He's thrown into a lion's den. Like, it's a stressful day at work for Daniel. But I think when I was reading this story, he's such an incredible example of faith. Like, his life is hard, it's tumultuous, it's chaotic, but he continually shows up in faith through his entire story. So as I was reading this, I realized I'd been asking the wrong question. I shouldn't be asking, how is God showing up in all of this? I need to ask, how am I showing up? And I'll ask that to you today. How are you showing up? If we know that our thoughts are the basis, and our, our thoughts and our attitudes are the basis for then our behaviors and our actions and our interactions. How are we showing up each day in our thoughts? Are we showing up with thoughts of negativity and fear and judgment or belittlement? Or are we showing up in faith? Are we showing up in love? Are we showing up in understanding? for people that might be thinking or behaving differently than we are. And I want to be clear too, like showing up in faith doesn't mean showing up by naive to what's happening in the world or to what's happening in our community or even naive to what's happening in our thoughts and our thought process. 
think showing up in faith just means that, like, you're not alone in this. You love and worship a God that's, like, got your back. I found a really great passage in Romans I just wanted to read, and I didn't put it on the screen. I just want you to listen to these few verses. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. He called them by name, set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he'd begun. So what do you think? With a God on our side like this, how can we lose? Thinking about thoughts and attitudes and beliefs and how those flow into behaviors and interactions, I think... I think we have a real opportunity here as a community of faith and a community of Christ followers to lead by example in this tumultuous, crazy time we live in. I just think it's it's important that it starts with our thoughts. And it starts with those thoughts of hope and love and understanding or whatever that looks like for you. And just remembering that how we start really leads out into our behaviors and our interactions in our conversations that we're having every day with all different kinds of people, people that agree with us and people that don't. I wanted to end here by reading just a quick passage from Proverbs, and then I will pray and the band will come up and lead us in one final song. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make straight your paths. God, thank you. Thank you so much for who you are and who you've created us to be. God, help us to realize that Our thoughts form the basis of our behaviors and our actions and our interactions. And just allow us to continue to show up in faith, just like Daniel. Help us to lead with thoughts of love and compassion and just a lot of grace for others and what they might be going through. Thanks, God. We love you. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.